0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Eat, Sleep,
1: Suplex, Retweets! Welcome everyone to Eat, Sleep, Suplex, Retweets! My name's Chris Murray, I'm your host for the evening, this week's show is another pay-per-view rewatch, And what a show we have had the pleasure of revisiting this week. It's Survivor season, meaning a bunch of our shows right now are looking back at one of the WWF or WWE's biggest all-time pay-per-views. So tonight, as we sit and record this for you now, we are going back 25 years to the day, my goodness, to the 10th annual Survivor Series from the world's famous Madison Square Garden in 1996. Of course, with any good Survivor Series team, I couldn't possibly go alone. So joining me in the Strive to Survive, I have two very special tag team partners. Some call them ESSR Originals. Some say they are the best Scottish duo since Shea Adams and John Suter. I call them Alan McLucas and Gary Kernahan. Hello, gentlemen.
2: Oh, thank you, thank you! Delighted to be part of this trio, the ESSR Handsome Man's Club. <laughs> How did I get in? That's what I want to know. Who <laughs> <laughs> did the
1: <laughs> Guys, right? Let's get some football chatting before Stephen notices. Much like this show, twenty-five years ago this year was. Euro 96, the last time Scotland qualified for a European tournament until this year. You guys were both at a Scotland game this week. What was that like then? I'll go with you, Alan. Just describe that 90 minutes for me.
0: I've seen Celtic Barcelona. I've seen Scotland play in several other countries. I've seen Celtic play, St. Martin play. I've been a lot of really big football matches, intense atmospheres. Nothing touched Monday night. Nothing even though in Scotland and England touched it because there was just something in the air that you knew it was our night. There was nothing stopping us. And we played like a dream. We showed that when we turn up, we are a team that you want don't want to play against. We were superb. Every man was absolutely brilliant. There was no faults at all. Honestly, it was just it was so good to be there. Obviously, yes, sir, I can boogie at the end. It was just special, and I was sitting crying. I'm like, "Oh my oh, god!" Oh. And uh, yeah, I can't a bit of sweet because I think we will get to the World Cup, but I can't go. <laughs> oh really? Yeah. Well, it's it's a Christmas, so I don't think I'm going to be allowed to go. To be honest, and I don't even have the money to go either.
1: That's true. That's true. It's funny, you were blubbering watching it in the stands. I was watching it with my English girlfriend who was very confused as to what was going on. But yeah, Gary, I saw you were in the stands as well. How was it?
2: I was indeed. It was amazing. I mean, one of the things that was so great about it was just all the, you know, this the past two years have been pretty shit, to be honest, haven't they? <laughs> and it was just so nice to see so many happy faces about the place. And it was the most un-Scotland-like performance ever. And the Moldova match, I mean, that was classic banana peel territory for Scotland. Uh, an away match against a team we should be—we should beat in one of these crappy stadiums. And we go up and we win it routinely. And then we go on and we play Denmark. And we absolutely bossed it. It was just this past couple of days, are just like, this isn't normally what it's like to be Scotland fans, is it? Normally, we're so great at clutching defeat from the jaws of victory, and we were just immense. I love it, and got a real hope that we, you know, we're two games away from the World Cup. We've been a long time since we've been this close. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Right. We better get this show done so that we can move on to our special Scotland podcast, Eat Sleep Scotland Retweet, which we're going to be (laughs) recording straight after. Right, guys, as you know, with any good Survivor Series team, you need a good manager. And we've got one. In fact, we've got the best one. We've got the anonymous general manager, a.k.a. Callum Bennett. Callum is not with us in person, but I'm going to be passing on his thoughts for the guys as we go. I say thoughts in heavily inverted commas because uh, he has left his handwritten notes. I have been trying to read them for the past four hours. I can't decipher any of it. That boy clearly never went to school, but we'll see how we got on with that. So. Callum's going to be supporting us. And before I start, I should say, Gary, if you want to nail the context of this episode, head over to whatever your favourite podcast site is and listen back to ESSR's feature show number 200 from back in June, where me, you, Stephen, Scott and David all looked back at the pay-per-view immediately before this King of the Ring. So that will give you the nice little context. Normally for these shows, I have been known to go back and watch four weeks of Raw before it. But instead, see, just because like the cover of the DVD for this, I didn't know any of the matches before going in. So I just sat down and watched it. So when all of the, you know, debuts happened throughout the show, all of the unexpected results, I was just like, oh, my God. So that's when this happens. So it was just a, a really good, fun
2: way oh, to. Chris, can I tell you a story about this? So this pay-per-view came off. So in 1996, I got Sky TV in the house for the first time, and this came out, and for some reason, I can't remember why, we were off school on the Monday when this should have been on. So me and my brother Derek were going to sit up and watch it live, which was really unusual for us because we always had school the next day. But for some reason, Sky did not show it live. This was shown as a pre-taped show like a week and a half later on like a thursday prime time time so in a way it was quite nice because she did we didn't know the spoilers or anything so we'd sat down my mum had got us a takeaway and we sat down and watched it but i actually had my my mum had the phone sky to check when it was going to be on because we were going so mental about it (laughs) Uh, but you sat down to watch this 25 years later when i sat down to watch this Twenty-five years ago, I didn't know half of these matches because most of them weren't really announced beforehand. <laughs> anyway, apart from the big matches, the the singles matches, <laughs> the rest of them had very, very little build up to them, and the debuts were not <laughs> announced. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I've just looked up the weekend of November sixteenth and seventeenth. Did anything important happen? Well, on that Monday, that you would have been off school. According to whathappenedonthisday.com, Star Trek First Contact, starring Patrick Stewart, premiered. I can't find any other. (laughs) What better reason to have a day off school? Right, let's get this show on the road. And I should say, while you're over there listening back to King of the Ring 96, give us a follow on all those social media sites to be kept up to date with all of our weekly discussions and brand new episodes. Just search for Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet on all the usual places. Right, Survivor Series 1996 comes to us on November 17th, 1996 from Madison Square Garden in New York, New York. It drew 18,647 fans to the arena, with just shy of 200,000 people watching along on pay-per-view. That was good for third best pay-per-view of the year after the Rumble in January and WrestleMania in April. It was an increase of 40,000 buys from the previous show, SummerSlam. Not sure if that says a lot about this show or little about SummerSlam. And it was up over 70,000 buys on last year's Survivor Series as well. So we're definitely sort of coming into the upside of WWF's mid-90s downturn at this point. We have three traditional Survivor Series matches, plus one on the pre-show, and three more singles matches as well, including a number one contenders match and one for the WWF Championship. Right, speaking of which, what's the current state of affairs in WWF at this time? Shawn Michaels has been WWF champ since WrestleMania 12 where he spectacularly won that Ironman match with Bret Hart in overtime. Don't watch it back. The match is way too long. Hunter Hearst Helmsley is in his first reign as Intercontinental champ, taking it from Mark Meadow on Raw last month. More on those two later. Meanwhile, Owen Hart and the British Bulldog are in their second and third reigns, respectively, as tag team champions. We open with that brilliant voiceover guy who just seemed to be in all the 90s films, just saying stuff like, in a small town. But he says, this weekend, it's as if every New Yorker has consumed an extra cup of caffeine. I was like, who says cup of caffeine? He sounds like one of the aliens from The Simpsons when they're posing as humans. <laughs> <laughs> and last night, the night before the Survivor Series, they had the annual Hall of Fame banquet. Of course, in the 90s, the Hall of Fame was at Survivor Series time. The likes of Killer Kowalski, Pat Patterson, the Valiant Brothers, and Vince McMahon Sr. were all inducted into the Hall of Fame. A couple more might crop up on our show later on. I loved the promo package with the read-through of the matches at the start. They sort of didn't do what they do nowadays, where they don't tell you anything, and they didn't do what they did in the 80s, where at the start of the show, they name every single team and every single wrestler and every single one. It was just a nice middle ground. Gary, we have done a lot of these 90s shows from MSG. I think this is one of the only events that I had never seen at the Garden before. Because I've now seen WrestleMania 10. I watched it for ESSR. And I'm sort of getting the context. And I'm just loving watching events in this arena.
2: Yeah, it's fab. And it's the first Survivor series that surprised me when I look back. And it's the first Survivor series that they'd ever done in Madison Square Garden, which considering it had been going for it's 10 years, it surprised me a bit. Bret Hart says in one of his promos during this, it's not a church, but it's holy ground. And they did some stuff in this match, like 18,000 seats. I mean, there's much bigger arenas than it, but they do some amazing camera work in Madison Square Garden where they have that camera that sort of swoops up through the building and it just looks enormous. And you know, I've been in it, it's not that big big in terms of context, but they it just feels the way they present it at times. And when you look back at this, Chris, as well, I mean, when you look through some of the names that are on this card, I mean, it's absolutely stacked with the names that are involved with it. I mean, there's some names that there's not a great deal to say about, but there are some, you know, a huge number, I've not counted them up yet, but a huge number of Hall of Famers that grace the ring this evening. For context for our Scottish
1: wrestling fans,
2: the Oval
1: Hydro in Glasgow has a capacity of fourteen thousand three hundred. So it's only slightly more than that for a venue that has hosted multiple WrestleManias. But Alan, looking around at the arena when this sort of kicked off, what did you make of just the, the sight of it?
0: Oh, it was spectacular. I mean, when you look at the other shows that have been there, the first WrestleMania, WrestleMania 10, like one of my non wrestling favourite shows I've ever seen that is Bon uh, Jovi did three nights there in 2012, and it's in one documentaries. now did a live concert, and it's a spectacular. Arena, and you know, and seeing that concert, John Bon Jovi walks around the arena, and comes out, he actually comes out the entrance the Survivor Series, you know, and people don't even see him; they don't even realise it. They don't; they're quite taken aback for the big front leg hits him there. He is standing on my guitar, but just people like from. I don't know me to the wall, which is like three feet away. Didn't realise John Bon Jovi's standing there with a guitar, but he's not saying you know. It's such a spectacular arena, and it's you know I think it's a, a fine looking arena, and, and I've never been. So I'm only based it from what I've seen from the inside and videos and shows and stuff. It has never changed. If they amended it in any way, they've been absolute outcry. of a travesty. It's like it's like touching the Roman Colosseum.
2: Yeah, that's right, Alan. There's something that's, when you look back at these, I mean, the, the set's so understated. It's just that little Survivor Series side and that little tiny ramp or walkway to the ring. There's not, no bells and whistles round about it. So in terms of presentation of date, it's very, very understated. I mean, one of the things I loved about this show, Chris, I've always loved the traditional Survivor Series matches and WWF had went through a little period before this, well, you had Survivor series that actually didn't have many of these matches in it. So I quite liked. I thought they got a nice balance between the traditional matches and singles matches. And singles matches that actually meant something. I really liked that part of this event as well, is the I, amazing location.
1: I like the sort of wrestling storyline that runs through the building, like as and we'll talk about this more later on. But as Shawn Michaels comes out for the main event, he walks down the corridor that Hulk Hogan and Mr. T walk down at WrestleMania yeah. one. And then and then when Shawn Michaels stops and he's at that sort of crossway just before you walk out. The door, I'm like, oh, that's where Macho Man hung crush at WrestleMania 10. And then and then there's a point where Sid, who I'm gonna bang on about how much I loved him in this show, like there's a point where Sid just stands and looks around as the audience are like almost falling on him. I was like, oh, that's the same shot as when John Cena came back in 2008 at the Royal Rumble. It's just I love I love when an arena is so special and so unique that you can pinpoint different bits of it. But anyway, Alan, I have to say as well, I just looked up this Bon Jovi set list. Coming out of the encore with You Give Love a Bad Name in Madison Square Garden. That would be pretty okay, in my opinion.
0: Interesting fact, if you find it interesting, it was the very first Bon Jovi song I ever learned to playing guitar. Oh, really? And my exam was just like, looking to me a lot. I was like, is it okay? And he goes, I love that song. And I'm like, <laughs> pass. And he just went, aye. And I'm like, yay. What's it? <laughs> So
1: the the pay per view opens with a match that was broadcast before the pay per view on Free for All. Aldo Montoya, Bart Gunn, Bob Holly, and Jesse James defeat Billy Gunn, Justin Bradshaw, Salvatore, Sincere, and the Sultan. That is a a whole bunch of people who have different names. <laughs> Aldo Montoya is just incredible. Bart Gunn, obviously Bart Gunn. Bob Holly, Hardcore Holly. Jesse James, of course. Road Dog. Billy Gunn. Mister Ass. Justin Bradshaw. JBL. Salvador Sincere is Thomas Brandy. That's all I know about him. And the Sultan, of course, is Rikishi. What can I tell you about this match? It was 10 minutes 46 and I haven't seen it. So let's hit the main card. (laughs) Match number one is a traditional Survivor Series match. We have the Bulldog, Owen Hart, with both of his slammies. And the new rockers, Marty Gennetti and Leif Cassidy, taking on Doug Furness, Philip LaFon and the Godwins alongside Hillbilly Jim. So, guys, I'll take you through some of my thoughts on the match, then I'll bounce around to you as well. And what I like about my notes is that my opinion on this match steadily changes as this goes on. (laughs) For the benefit of anyone who might be watching along at home, Furnace is the one with the long hair, and LaFont is the one with the short hair. JR tells us that they've previously been all Asian tag team champions. They tagged for eight years, and at the conclusion of this match we will have a career retrospective of Doug Furness and Philip LaFont. Marty just, I, I don't know whether he was smashed out his bin during this match. He has previously been accused of such a thing, but the match starts with the Godwins trying to clap to get their team going and Marty just starts clapping along with them. So my first thing that I noted, JR says, if Marty would just quit being a hero, he might be more successful. And then I thought, Holy crap, is this during the JR heel run? I've only yes. ever heard about this. I've never actually seen it. Is Gary, can you confirm?
2: It is indeed. It's not long after they brought back fake diesel and fake razor. And yes, and you see he's a bit salty throughout the, the whole show. <laughs> I loved it.
1: Phineas spits in the air and then catches oh. it and uses his spit to rub his hair. That was in my notes.
2: Gross. <laughs> Absolutely gross.
1: We get a quick run of eliminations. Henry O'Godwin pins Marty after a slop drop, which is a kind of stinger drop reverse DDT thing. Owen pins Henry after a spinning heel kick, and Bulldog pins Phineas with a running power slam. I didn't realise until afterwards that Marty got quite injured really early on in the match. It's kind of hard to tell, but he's hobbling. And then before you know it, he was eliminated. Straight away, I'm like, why am I watching Leaf Cassidy jobbing out actual jobbers in the opening match? Get this off my TV. And then I'm like, oh, Lafon pins Leaf Cassidy with a second rope reverse suplex gut type thing. That looked quite cool. And then I was like, oh, Lafon has quite creative feet. He reminds me of like a more muscly landstorm. And then straight away, I'm like, okay, I'm on board with these guys. Lafon pins Bulldog with a roll up after Bulldog should have been disqualified for a low blow. They are really putting these two new guys over huge. Bulldog immediately retaliates with a chop block to Lafon's knee. And I'm like, how are they getting these guys over? This is amazing. Lafon does a reverse ends a Zaguri, Jeff Hardy style. And then Doug Furness hits a beautiful belly to back suplex, lands went on his head. And what the hell? Doug Furness has actually won this match. You're sole survivors. I was completely changed. Throughout the course of this match from the start of it, I was like, Oh, well, these guys are getting pinned first. They obviously couldn't make up the numbers enough. And by the end, I was totally on board with them. <laughs> Alan, what did you make of the opening match?
0: I was in a phase where this is boring. This is boring. That was actually quite good, actually. You know, I kept one up and down. I mean, Lee Cassidy's elimination. If you really I've never seen it since or before, I was like, Well, that's very different. So that made it memorable. But from a police really perspective, the heel work from the Bulldog and own heart was superb. And all the way through, any time somebody from the other team was in their corner, they all jumped on there. They kept the typical heel tag team thing going and they were really, really good. But also, Furnace and LaFont actually had some good chemistry together as well. So I can understand why they did get put over quite quickly. Leif Cassidy, who we all knew became Al Snow, loves about head. I got quite a shock. So I didn't realize he was actually in this match. I didn't know he was in WWE at this point. But Marty Giannetti, the quintessential jobber. Yeah, I've got to be honest. I didn't realize he was legitimately injured. I thought he he was just doing some really good, you know, kayfabe in the match. But overall, I think I probably did enjoy it. But when I was watching it, I did go through emotions. was quite good. Then it just that I'm not the biggest tag team wrestling fan in the world. I know Gary shocked to hear that. I'm a lot better what lot, lot worse and it's worse on the
2: card I thought it was a great way to get Ferson for falling over they were booked incredibly strongly I wonder if the plan was for it to be four versus two and for them to really overcome the odds but Giannetti did get legitimately injured during the match and Henry Godwin then eliminated him I thought overall it was a really solid match I think it dragged at times. There were some bits of it that seemed to go on. I love in Survivor Series where you get these like quick flurry of eliminations that we got in this match when the slop drop, which I think looks like a devastating move because Henry O'Godwin's a unit of a man <laughs> as well. And then for him to get eliminated straight away with a spinning heel kick, and the British Bulldog obviously eliminates Phidias O'Godwin not long after that. And you're left with the three versus two, Leaf Cassidy, Owen and Bulldog to do that. And as you said, there's some really nice movements throughout the match. The Exploder suplex off the top rope looked devastating, which I Gallen just touched on there. Lafon's pin the Bulldog, which was a crucifix into like a sunset flip type roll-up, was a really nicely executed move. And then Furnace over Owen Hart with a German release really suplex and the partner then jumping on top of it with a really nice executed tag team match. Uncle Dave gave it three and a quarter stars, which for a traditional Survivor Series match isn't he a bad rating? So even he liked it. So I thought it was, uh, I thought it was a solid match. A wee bit too long for my liking. Like I said, I think it dragged a wee bit at times. And if it had been maybe a wee bit shorter, I think the crowd would have been a bit hotter to it throughout. Because it did feel at points that they sort of disengaged and then something exciting would happen
1: our, our friend Callum our manager has dropped me some notes on this Old Japan what the fuck mm-hmm. who does this why does Marty look so sad come on Owen son I hate Al Snow them belts are and then that's the end of that sentence I beat that hellbilly Owen fucking geek what the hell is Skylight what See, that's
2: the type of insight that people tune into. eat, sleep, suplex <laughs> for. You can't get that type of analysis anywhere else, folks. And then at the end it just says SDD
1: or, or, or maybe a five? Five out of ten? I don't yeah.
2: know. So Firmus and Lafon, uh, if, if I remember right, what followed here, they were played with injuries. I think they ended up in the Battle Royal at WrestleMania 13. After this, they had a tag Title opportunity against Bulldog and Owen, and in your house. But I think that's really all there is of note of their WWF tag team round. Unless you can remember anything else, Chris.
1: Yes, Gary, do you know what? These guys probably haven't had a light shone upon them in at least 20 years. And we're going to do it right now. Doug Furness and Philip Lafon, who are these guys? Let me tell you, they are the Can Am Express, not to be confused with the Can Am Connection. From yeah, the 80s. very different, very that different. Rick Martell and Tom Zenk, of course, Doug and Phil teamed up for nine years from 1989 to 1998, and they won belts in ECW, UWA, and Japan. They were most successful in all Japan, where they were a record five time. All-Asia Tag Team Champions. So they've got some cred on their name. What happened after this night? Well, the next night on Raw, they teamed up again to defeat Bob Holly and Leaf Cassidy, and then the Headbangers the next night on Superstars. The following month, they defeated Dr. X and T.L. Hopper on Raw, and they went on a winning streak all through 96, which culminated on the 30th of December, beating Diesel and Razor Ramon with a doomsday device. Had to check, yes, as you mentioned earlier, fake ones. They kept the winning streak into 97 where they faced Owen and Bulldog for the tag titles and they won by count out. So they didn't win the belts. This went all the way to In Your House 13 final four in February where they beat Owen and Bulldog for the belts again by DQ. Owen hit Lafon with one of his slammies. (laughs) So again, the belts did not change hands. They were on the house circuit for a while remaining undefeated before coming back for the dark match of In Your House 14 where they beat their former partners, the Godwins. They got jobbed out to the Legion of Doom and around this time they turned heel and then they lost to the new Blackjacks for the next few months. They made it all the way to Survivor Series 1997 where they won again as part of Team Canada alongside Jim Neidhart and British Bulldog, their former enemy in the Bulldog and one month later wrestled their final match as a team in the WWF, beating Flash Funk and Scott Taylor on the 9th of December, 1997. Now, after this, Vince obviously did still see something in them as he sent them to ECW to train. This happened with a lot of the guys that are in this time, guys like Leaf Cassidy, who we've just seen, went from the WWF to ECW, became Al Snow and was brought back. In ECW, they were part of the Team WWF stable, and they even had a short-lived run as ECW Tag Team Champions in late 1997. They sadly broke up, as I mentioned, in early 1998, when LaFon left ECW altogether. He would go on to wrestle in Mexico, Japan, and Canada before re- retiring in only 2014. Furnace sadly passed away from a heart attack in March 2012, and so tells the story of the Can-Am Express. <laughs> I have to put some respect on them. I think that they turned up on this show. I, I'll be the first to admit, I was ready to hate them from the second I saw them. And uh, I was converted by the end of the match.
2: See, this, is, this is more the type of analysis that folk tune in for. Remember, we did the rundown in one of our shows. We, we always have these random uh, Easter eggs on our shows. You know, the history of Viscera. Jack Swagger's WrestleMania record, as well, was a particular highlight, and this has to go right up there.
0: I just feel Chris is awaited if this could be a Christmas
2: special.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes,
1: so the Can Am Express, they're done wrestling for the night, but it's not going to be the last time we'll see them. Keep that in mind. We cut to the bowels of Madison Square Garden, where Kevin Kelly is interviewing Paul Bader and Mankind. What are they two doing together? Well, yes, the last in your house, or maybe the one before that. Paul Bader, of course, has now left The Undertaker and has joined up with Mankind. SummerSlam, sorry. Yeah, so Vince is bellowing his introduction of Kevin Kelly to get his voice over the Fink in the ring, who's introducing Chief J. Strongbow for some reason. This must have just been a thing for the live audience, but I actually paused it, rewound it, and specifically listened to what Fink was saying. I heard him just Chief J Strongbow. I waited to see if it came up at all anywhere else in the pay-per-view or if he was in to do with the Hall of Fame. But no, he must have just been in the ring for some reason off camera.
2: Chris, I'm looking forward to talking about Captain Lou Albano later.
1: <laughs> yeah, here. Don't forget about him. Paul Bader says he's not going in a cage because he's Paul Bader and you're not. Mankind cutely calls him Uncle Paul saying remember buried alive and that he's going to stomp undertaker like the cockroaches he used to call dinner i'm excited for this mankind is getting to the stage of his wrestling career where his promo work and his wrestling work are sort of on a level later on his career his wrestling slips but his promos get better so this is kind of the best of both worlds back in the ring the cage is lowered for our next match but it's not a cage match it's a short cage match as Undertaker is taking on Mankind with Paul Bader hanging above the ring. First of all, first note, that cage looks very flimsy for holding a man like Paul Bader. (laughs) (laughs) JR and Vince both agree with me. JR saying, will he fit in that cage? And Vince saying, it's supposed to be a shark cage. Maybe it's a whale cage. Yeah, as I said, Mankind, I think, looks in great shape here. This era of Mankind with the sort of, Brown overalls. I think that's him at his physical peak. The commentators point out Undertaker was literally buried alive at our last pay per view extravaganza. Of course, yes, losing the buried alive match at In Your House. Buried alive? Was it called that? Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. Tonight is six years since Undertaker's debut, which means tonight in real life is 31 years since Undertaker's debut. My God, we are all getting very, very old undertaker makes his entrance and descends from the rafters like a bat he has wings i got goosebumps i've never seen this entrance before i don't understand why this isn't one of the entrances that's in the highlight reels that we see of taker day in day out they've got the lights in the crowd like you know phone cameras that you'd see nowadays you've got the spotlight on undertaker is all just brilliant taker tries immediately to get to Paul Bader from one side of the cage and he can't reach him. And I'm thinking, Taker, just move around. Like, just walk around <laughs> to the other side. <laughs> just want to, like, lean in. Oh, there's so many issues with wrestling. Taker uses a drop toe hold and an arm bar. I wanted to criticize his arm bar rest hold, but No. JR kindly explains to us he's doing it to neutralize the mandible claw. I like that piece of information. Commentators are putting Mankind over massively. No man has ever caused such harm to The Undertaker before. Normally, in Undertaker matches, especially in his later career, it's all about how can any wrestler possibly beat this man? Mankind hits an absolutely disgusting-looking stump-puller pile driver. Never liked that move, but that is his move. So I'm assuming that he knows how to do it correctly. Mankind gets the mandible claw on, but Taker breaks up with a choke slam. Then Mankind grabs some kind of object and clocks Taker in the head with it. I thought this was gonna be a blade job, but no, Undertaker's head is clean. I thought it looked like a 15 centimeter ruler that you used to get in your pencil case at school. Mankind goes for the object again, but Taker reverses it into the tombstone. One, two, three, Undertaker is your winner. My immediate thoughts, these two just work so well together great matches. I'm glad that there's another Undertaker-Mankind match that I've never watched that I get to watch now. And then, of course, the outcome of the match, Taker's just about to get his hands on Paul Bader, but is attacked by the Executioner. Taker has the running clothesline on him. And of course, Executioner gets up before Undertaker. He runs off and Taker doesn't get his chance to get his hands on Paul Bader. I'll tell you who the executioner was after we get your thoughts. Gary, what did you think of Undertaker Mankind? This must be the third time. Third time after Buried Alive in King of the Ring.
2: Yep, you're correct. King of the Ring, where mankind beats the Undertaker by technical knockout, I suppose you call it there, with the mandible claw. Paul Bearer heel turn leading to the the victory at SummerSlam, Buried Alive, which I think the Undertaker technically won. He only threw a little bit of the dirt onto Mankind, if I remember right. And then all the bad guys came out. And Undertaker's got no pals, so nobody came to help him. And he got buried by all the bad guys. This match, you know, sometimes one of the great things of looking back at these is your memory sometimes plays tricks on you. I remember this being a shorter match and being a wee bit surprised at how quickly The Undertaker disposed of Mankind. That wasn't the case. You know, Banking was such a great opponent for the Undertaker Because Undertaker had gone through fighting all these big people like the giant Gonzales and King Kong Bundy, people that weren't the really great workers, and he was going up against Mankind, who was was smaller and much more technically sound. So he was able we were seeing a different Undertaker, and we've seen Undertaker being reinvented as a character, as you, you mentioned, Chris. Taker did things a bit different he worked quite differently in this match as well. You started seeing them working more strategically, like going after Mankind's fingers in the match to stop him from doing the mandible claw. he done a really nice drop toe hold at one point and started applying submission holds. Not stuff that you normally see an undertaker doing. Yeah, you see him do like chin locks and things like that in matches, but that was all quite different in the match. I love the way that he managed to get the tombstone on in this match, slightly you know, different, and it was a bit surprising. And I think the ending of the match was disappointing because we'd all been waiting, for, the fans were waiting for this payoff to see The Undertaker get his hands on Paul Bearer, and you barely got to touch him when the executioner appeared, and that was somewhat disappointing what would follow with The Executioner. I would have loved that if they maybe just let Undertaker... Get his hands on Paul Bearer, rough him up for a bit, and then the executioner made his appearance. I did love Paul Bearer refusing his work throughout this. I loved him refusing to go into the shark cage. And then the minute the Undertaker came out on oh, my way in, I'm getting the hell out of here. I thought all the matches we had, I thought the King of the Ring and the SummerSlam match, people have different views in the Boiler Room match at SummerSlam. I loved it at the time. The King of the Ring match I thought was fabulous. People will often focus on the Hell in the Cell match that they have for obvious reasons at the King of the Ring. But I loved their first match at King of the Ring. So I think this is probably the weakest of the matches they had in the series, but it's still a good, solid match.
1: That's (laughs) the weird thing. That's almost like a compliment to this, that this is the worst of the five or six that they had. Because I I thought this was really, really good. Alan, I don't know if you picked up on this. Gary touched on it a bit there with the finish. It sort of had those... WrestleMania 17 vibes where Triple H is on the corner on Undertaker and he manages to reverse Triple H's punches to his head into the last ride. It was sort of a similar situation at the end of this match. Mankind was in the same position trying to hit him with the foreign object and then Undertaker somehow reverses it into the tombstone. So I love the finish. What did you make of the match?
0: Yeah, i thought the to probably it was the second best match of the night. Um, the guy Tomba about the length, it was the second sharpest match of the night as well. I thought the match was actually solid. I agree with Gary as well when he's talking about it. So all the matches. is probably the weakest, which it is, but it's still really, really interesting. The storytelling is like excellent. i mean, I start off the, the entrance. Is it Batman? Is it a vampire? Is it a gimp suit without the mask and the sleeves? I don't know. It's really up to him. No, it's subjective. But what I did like about it is it set up that look Taker had for the next three, four years. Obviously, the letter didn't really kind of work. Or I don't know why as well, but both Mankind and the Taker, if you look at the boots, it was like looking at something out of the Three Musketeers. Like it was like D'Artagnan's boots, you know, kind of, just literally going, really not proper wrestling boots. I know I shouldn't be looking at wrestling at this point, but I really was so focused on their boots. <laughs> but yeah, the storytelling was really, really good, especially they kept playing the part of. When Taker was going to ask for McFoley or Mankind's fingers, and they were saying the only reason he get out of the mandible cause because he attacked the fingers, and obviously Mankind couldn't hold the move. So the storytelling was really, really good. Yeah, it was really disappointed. Paul beard didn't get his comeuppance, but it, it was a really good match. I really enjoyed it, and it's actually seen Taker fight in a different style, which I'll be honest, I don't remember him doing it any other time other than this. It was really quite refreshing to watch and it was good to actually see a different side of Taker.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And we go to Callum. He explains how Taker did a drop toehold. What the fuck? How is this man still alive? Paul man, shut up. Taker with the toe drop. Does he know mankind is bringing back red, white and blue ropes? Old school, Taker the spoiler. I might stop reading these. These are maybe getting worse. Callum's yeah. handwriting's getting worse. Great, great, great match from Taker and Mankind. So at the end of the match, we were joined by the Executioner. Who was the Executioner? Gary, do you know? Yes, I do. It was, of yes. course, Teddy Gordy, famed for the fabulous Freebirds, of course, amongst many other things. He previously attacked The Undertaker after Undertaker beat Mankind in the Buried Alive match, as Gary mentioned earlier. That was at SummerSlam. After tonight, he turned up on Monday Night Raw the following week, where he defeated Freddie Joe Floyd. He then wrestled The Undertaker at In Your House 12, losing to Taker in an Armageddon Rules match, which I do believe is a last man standing match, essentially. He was wrestling under a mask because Vince wasn't sure that Terry Gordy could still go. Obviously, the Freebirds were going... 70s 80s maybe so he was worried that when he brought Terry Gordy in that he wouldn't be able to perform at the standards that his fans had come to know of Terry Gordy so he thought we'll bring him in and under a mask and then we'll reveal it later on sadly Terry didn't really hang about the WWF I think he bounced about a few different promotions after this and sadly passed away in 2001. However, he was inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame in 2016 as part of the Freebirds alongside Michael Hayes, Jimmy Garvin, and the also passed away Buddy Roberts. So I think he is remembered quite fondly by all of those in the WWE. So we head backstage where Doug Furness and Philip LaFon are taking messages via WWF on AOL online no doubt lots of people just messaging them saying here who are you you's wrestlers I liked the footage of them which had Doug and Phil both standing behind two you know computer folk who were doing all the typing for them and just nodding as if they were both saying the most profound stuff possible Gary or Alan did you ever go on AOL and talk to any WWF wrestlers at any point
0: Sadly not, no No, but I just, I love that scene I just remember seeing the size and the clunkiness of the laptops and thing. My calculator has more power than the
2: laptops I'm still gutted I never got to tout with a WWE superstar either, so I'm going to add AOL chats and touts to that list, do you remember that being a thing guys? Sadly
1: Yeah, that's our last appearance of Doug and Phil, but they are in the ESSR Hall of Fame as far as I'm concerned. Uh, Mm -hmm. Whose music is this? Oh, Sonny is joining us. She comes to the ring to join (laughs) Vince and Jim on commentary. We go backstage as Doc Hendricks, the man we just mentioned, Michael Hayes, is interviewing the Intercontinental Champion, Hunter Hearst Helmsley, Crush, Jerry the King Lawler and... Goldust alongside Marlena. Now, again, we don't know too much about what's coming up, but Doc tells us that an injury to Mark Henry—Mark Henry, Mark Henry sorry—means tonight is four on three. Jerry says there isn't four men on the planet who can beat us. Four Crush adds, "We will work like a well-oiled machine of destruction." And Goldust says, "You won't forget his name."
2: What a r- wonderfully random team. <laughs>
1: It's beautiful. It's very telling of its era having four completely separate gimmicks, all with one tag team. They just needed like a a name, like they would have had in the eighties, like you know, no. the 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 four by fours, the, the ultimate warriors. If only we could have got these guys
0: all under one name, but it wasn't to be. I was corrected, but Triple H can't say New York right. And when he goes to say New York, he goes, New York, and it's like in this mind is he going, Am I still supposed to be French right now? I don't know if he still had the French accent or not. I don't, because he kind of went in and out a wee but and I'm just like, oh, this is cringy. This is so cringy. And then when he comes out later on, I'm just still going, that's the cerebral assassin. Nobody would ever believe in 1996, you go to 2021, that that guy's a 14-time world champion, cerebral assassin, one of the best ever. You'd have been like, no chance.
1: So match number three is another Survivor Series match. It's Crush, Jerry, Hunter, and Goldust, who we've just seen against who? Let's find out. Crush is out first with his awful face tattoo. I hope you don't sweat too much because that might come off. Triple H, according to Vince, has lost his woman. GR retorts, what's a woman going to do at ringside? Forgetting that actual Sonny is sitting next to him. Sonny retorts saying, I make a living coming down to the ring and telling men what to do. Why don't you just sit there and look chubby? And I was like, Sonny, you absolutely got him. Well done. Although she does make a living slightly differently telling men to do things nowadays. (laughs) Sonny suggests that Mark Merrow, who comes out first, that Mark Merrow's Catherine Wheels might light Sable's fake tits on fire. (laughs) I've never thought of it before now, but it's entirely possible. Mark Merrow is joined by The Stalker, played by Barry Windham. I think this is the first Barry Windham match I've ever had the pleasure of watching. And sadly, it's not one of the best. It's not one of his heyday of the 80s when he was NWA World Heavyweight Champion.
2: And then all I was sudden- excited about the Stalker when he debuted because he debuted with all these video packages. And he firstly had cool entrance music and Barry Windham was really in real life into... Hunting, which is what the inspiration for this. I remember he's, he used to come out with like face paint and things on. You can see for this point, he's already pushed the I don't give a fuck button. And he's out there wearing a fucking WWF t-shirt and no face paint. And, you know, he's no camouflage. He's no giving a shit now.
1: Sadly, this was my first and only exposure to the stalker, Barry Wyndham And I'm sad I didn't see more of his gimmick. But I wish they just brought him in. I don't know, in the late 80s, he was like Lex Luger. He was just this guy that was like big, muscly, and would probably batter you. But it was a much different man we saw in 1996. Hang on, is this guy a face? Because he's on the face team. No time to think about that now, because holy shit, Rocky Maivia debuts as the third member of the team. Vince says it's the first third generation superstar ever in the WWF. And uh, yeah, mind blown that this happened in this match. I never put two and two together that this Survivor Series, this entrance was the one where Rock came out. I think he looks with his, you know, little poodle hair. I think he looks so much like the Usos here specifically. I can't remember what the connection is. They are cousins, second cousins, wee brothers, something like that. They're all part of a similar family. Mark Meadow gets on the mic. And of course, we are 4v3 at this point, And he says... He's had a revelation. And straight away, I was like, could it be? And yes, the fourth man in his team is Jake the Snake Roberts. Revelations, of course, is the name of his snake at this time, but it's also just a Bible reference. And I thought, oh, I wonder if that's Jake. Jake's comeback story in 1996 reached a peak at King of the Ring, of course, when he got to the final, but then lost to Stone Cold Steve Austin. Since then, he's been sporadically appearing on Raw. So, That's our huge introduction for all of our eight members. Rock gets in the ring against Jerry Lawler, who just puts him over massively, just bouncing all about the ring for the Rock's punches before Triple H gets in and we get a preview of the future of the company. Of course, Rock and Triple H, both WWF champions less than three years from this day. The Rock on November 1998, and Triple H in August 1999. You can actually see Hunter leading Rock through the moves as they're wrestling, and it's just brilliant to see. They have immediate chemistry that is going to lead them to make millions of dollars over the course of the next five, six, seven, eight years. Rock tags in Jake, who cleans house. He, I thought, looked so, so quick despite being 41 years old. Things you don't like to see. Jake falls over and King takes the piss out of Jake's previous drinking problem. Thankfully, Jake spikes him with the DDT, one, two, three, and JR shouts, we'll see you on Raw tomorrow night. I thought that was a brilliant line. Goldust hits the curtain call on the stalker for the pin. I wrote the spoiler here, which I think is a different wrestler altogether. While Mark Meadow and Hunter are in the ring, all the faces start stamping on the apron. And because the aprons are mic'd up in the WWF the noise is headache inducing. Mero hits a beautiful Mero salt on Triple H to eliminate him and I thought we should pause and I could ask you did you see the video of him doing the rounds recently of him doing the Mero salt onto a lake at age 61? It is well worth going and finding it on his Twitter Mark Meadow at 61 is still absolutely jacked, and he can still do a pretty good Meadow Salt. He just needs about five meters to do the full rotation. Go and check that out on Twitter. Meadow goes for a suicide dive on the outside, but completely misses and splats on the floor. It makes a huge thud, and it made me think, ow, that would probably hurt your hips quite a lot. Crush then hits the heart punch on Jake, and we're left with Rock versus Crush. And Gold Dust. Sonny points out that he's only a rookie, and already the crowd are chanting his name. And yeah, sure enough, the crowd are chanting Rocky, Rocky. We get an early version of the rock's, you know, smell the hand, I'm gonna punch you thing that he does on Gold Dust. A flying crossbody on Crush eliminates him before a beautiful shoulder breaker on Gold Dust leaves the rock, Rocky My Via, as the sole survivor in his debut match. Holy cow, guys, right. We've had two Survivor Series matches and both guys that have won, or all three guys that have won, are all in their first night there. I'm so impressed. Alan, what do you make of this? The Rocks debut, you've got the Stalker, you've got Sable's tits maybe going on fire. It was action started to finish.
0: Right. This is a match. It's the reason why I wanted to do this show. JR's sexism during the show is not age well at all. But, some of Sonny's one-liners against JR are brilliant. Our comebacks are amazing, especially when JR says Sable's the best-looking woman in the WWF and says, so why don't you go to Mark Merrill? And she goes, I don't take leftovers, Sonny. He just puts him in his place. Stalker, first I've ever seen Stalker. Doesn't work her face. That's a heel character I've ever heard one. So Mark Merrill looking like a porn star. Let's be honest, he did. Jake the Snake, doesn't look like in the best condition, but you still go. Cool. He did it well. And uh, obviously, the great one, Rock, did really, really well. He the to save you. Imitating his dad to perfection. So you're talking about the punches. That's the type of punches his dad did. The stiff, fast, but ones. Really mimicked his father. Really, really well played. Really good homage to his dad and his grandfather. The only thing just kind of rooted for me it was just that, that case of hair. I mean, what the fuck was he thinking? you <laughs> would start pretending. You just, so like, if that was now, if you were walking out, forget the hair, but you'd be like, that's your guy. That's him. It's like when everyone first seen Roman, you went, that's your guy. That's the person you're building the company now. Crushed the oldest. Jerry Lawler. I mean, Jerry Lawler, his skill work is amazing, but I just feel very okay, uncomfortable when he started walking. Jake's alcoholism. But mm-hmm. I did love the fact that when he started the cow turned and started just calling him Burger King and he got off his eating it. So I did absolutely love that. But that for me was the best Survivor Series match of the night. I did really enjoy it. And again, as you said, it put the walk over, the walkie went over really, really well. And you know, it was a good match. And it's one thing that's kind of odd, is also in this per view, all the matches for Survivor series of four V4s which is the first I've ever seen, so I'm used to either the Deadly game, 98, which is still, to me, the best Survivor Series ever, or it's your 5v5, so I actually think the 4v4 works better than the 5v5, I think the dynamics change a little bit better, and the, the movement flows a bit better, but I think if you're if ever going to go back to it, this match is a template of how to work, Survivor Series matches I thought was really good the whole way
2: through. Yeah, one of the things I liked about this match, and I liked it, you see quite a lot in five or six, is when you have four random people, but they're feuding with somebody on the opposite side. In this match, all we had in that respect was Triple H, Mark Marrow, Jake, and The King. I liked that, but I really love it when you've got four faces and four heels, all singles, and they're feuding with somebody on the other side. I really love that. I thought, that obviously, the lock looked fabulous, which is what this match was designed to do, wasn't it? The athleticism that we've seen from The Rock earlier on in it, the nip up, the leapfrogs that he did as well, and the drop kicks, which were also a staple of his dad's time there. I thought that looked good. I actually thought Crush looked pretty good in this match. He was booked fairly strongly. One thing I don't miss is the domino stretch move, which is, seems to be faded out because there was one that was put on in this match that seemed to last for ages. I loved this version of Mark Marrow and the high fly moves that he was doing at this point. I really enjoyed that. The commentators completely missed the fourth fall when Marrow got eliminated. There were a couple of lines in here. Oh, Sonny saying of The Rock at this point, two and one seems pretty good. There was also, I've got to give a mention to the Candy Floss sellers who was on the hard cam side, who every so often seemed to walk past with like a huge amount of candy floss and like a big pole and kept getting in the way of the camera shots. It was also fun to go back and see The Rock's first finishing move, the shoulder breaker. It didn't really get the crowd going in the same way that the people's elbow would in the years to come. But I thought I always liked these types of matches. Uncle gave gave it two stars. I thought that was a wee bit mean.
1: Yeah, I think it's funny you mentioned about the shoulder breaker. My only issue I had with this was that The Rock gets gold dust up for it. And I thought it was going to be like the British Bulldog running power slam. But straight yeah. away, JR is like, oh, it's going to be the shoulder breaker. I was like, how do you know it's his first match? K-fape. <laughs> but it's okay. We'll let him off with it. I think they did it with Triple H as well. They were like, oh, what move was that? It was the pedigree. Anyway, nevertheless, that is our third match of the night before we hit the fourth match let's talk about some exceptional promo work from two men i'm talking about brett the hitman Hart and stone cold we set up this match brett Hart has returned we've not seen him since wrestlemania when he lost the belt he says the one thing that's been missing for the last five or six months is me I was like, are you a heel now? Is that where we are in this timeline? But no, he's just being badass. He's accepted the challenge of the best wrestler in the world and will face Stone Cold Steve Austin tonight. Stone Cold in his says, if you put the letter S in front of Hitman, you get my exact opinion of him. Then we cut to the arena where we get live interviews with both men. Austin says, cliches are cliches and an ass whooping is an ass whooping. He has every single trait of his character that he's going to have until 2003, 4, 5. He's already got them down perfect. And this is, what, two months, three months since King of the Ring. And again, Austin, phenomenal shape. Just love to see it. Brett, on the other hand, says the one thing Austin doesn't have going for him in this match is that it takes place at Madison Square Garden. He has the might of the crowd behind him and he, in this match, is fighting for respect and Austin will respect him at the end of tonight. I sometimes hate when they throw the word respect around in wrestling, but this felt genuine. Brett Hart is the best wrestler in the WWF at this time and he's scorned. He's back after losing his belt. So, why not fight for respect when you can't fight for the belt? This is going to be his first televised match in eight months after doing some house shows since WrestleMania when he lost to Sean. Before we get into it, guys, what did you think of the promo package leading into this match? Gary?
2: I mean, I was so excited about this. Hitman was my hero growing up. So, I was properly excited about this. This was a big, big night for Stone Cold Steve Austin. Yes, he won the King of the Ring. And people think, when you look back at it now, that when he cut that promo, he was off and running. He wasn't. It was the start of something. And this night, I think, really accelerated him. Or this feud really accelerated his growth to superstardom. So, yeah, I was super excited about this. Couldn't wait.
1: Alan Gary said it there. The WWF and E rewrote history that Austin cut that promo at King of the Ring and the next night was him holding the title at WrestleMania. But we are getting to witness tonight the steps which he took to that WrestleMania main event.
0: Yeah, I mean, you can see he's the punny's still raw. He's not the finished article yet. You know, he's, he's got, he's about, I'd say about 80% of the way there. It's a bit like, I think, see, he's looking at it now. A bit like Dominic Mysterium, he's got the potential to go all the way, but he's still so raw and he still needs a wee bit of development. That's kind of where he's at, I, I totally agree, he is, on the, he is on the way, pardon me, and what a way to help put him over by having one of the top two in the company, I actually do it for you.
1: And let's dive in, Stone Cold's out first looking like every bit of the smug heel that will dominate this company, or smug face if you will. Until he retires, whatever year it is in the early 2000s, the arena comes unglued for Brett's entrance, complete with pyro right, left, and center. He is every bit of a walking, talking WWF champion, just doesn't have the belt at this point. Not only is this Brett's first match since WrestleMania, it's his first match back in Madison Square Garden since the night he won the WWF championship at WrestleMania 10. The winner of this match it gets announced meets the champion next month at In Your House in West Palm Beach, Florida. JR compares the match to Holyfield versus Tyson, which would have been the biggest boxing match of the 90s. JR mentions, is this match a submission match? He thinks that neither man has ever submitted in the World Wrestling Federation. It's a weird thing to say because the match isn't a submission match, nor does it end on a submission. Much like Mankind slash Taker earlier, I think these two work phenomenally well together. Brett launches Austin over the barricade and into the front row as the audience go apeshit for both men. Austin then launches Brett into the Spanish announcers before dropping the elbow on him from the top rope. The table doesn't break, of course. Back in the ring, Brett hits a brilliant stun gun on Austin using his own moves against him onto the top rope before a really elaborate rollover pin to get Austin into the pinning situation. Just beautiful. Brett hits a pile driver on Austin after which JR quips, how do you like the athleticism of the World Wrestling Federation? Ask us again after your brother breaks Austin's neck. Austin gets Brett on the corner and starts hammering with slaps and punches. And once again, the whole arena are just going mental. Austin then drops Brett on the mat with a superplex, one of Brett's moves. He gets Brett up and stunner. Brett rolls for the rope break, but Austin drags him back. And one, two, kick out. Everyone can't believe it. Brett kicks out of the Stone Cold Stunner. Obviously, not quite the extreme finishing move it would later be. Austin picks up Brett for the Texas Cloverleaf in the middle of the ring, but Brett gets the rope break before going for the sharpshooter, but Austin gets the rope break this time. Brett gets Austin up for the sleeper, but Austin drops him with a jawbreaker before Austin slaps on his own patented million-dollar sleeper. This time... Brett walks up the turnbuckle, complete with still the sleeper on, rolls Austin over, pins his shoulders, and one, two, three, Brett wins the match. Austin can't believe it. He's been outsmarted by the man, Brett Hart. He walks away, staring dead at Brett Hart, knowing he was this close to beating the best there ever was or ever will be. JR admits that Austin almost pinned himself as Brett tours the ring with even Vince standing up to tell him it was absolutely unbelievable. It's then confirmed that Brett will face either Psycho Sid or Shawn Michaels at In Your House 12. It's time in December. And JR puts him over massive, saying that neither Sid or Shawn Michaels, the WWF champion, could have beaten Brett in that ring tonight. Oh my God, guys, this match, it was so much fun to watch. I don't know where to start with this, so I'm just going to go to you. Alan, try and describe what we've just witnessed.
0: Match tonight was a great, great match. You know what I liked about it was, like we mentioned with have seeing Austin wrestle differently. Firstly, no knee braces—something I'm not used to seeing. He always had at least one or two. Secondly, the technical mat wrestling. It just shows you how good a wrestler Stone Cold actually was because you don't associate that with his character. He's supposed to be this hard, tough redneck that is just out for a fight and brawl. So to see it, dynamic on Dynamical was really intriguing, really interesting. I just love when he threw Brett on the announce team. That redneck, rough fight, and just came out he just started kicking him while Brett is on top of the announce team. So the pair of guys <laughs> underneath him watching Brett getting leathered. I also like the million dollar team sleeper being used but it's Stone Cold, paying homage to when he was the million dollar champion. Really good match. However, longest match tonight is just short of 30 minutes. I felt it was a bit too long. I felt it could have lost about 10 minutes, to be honest. But it was still even at nearly for half an hour long, the whole match tonight, it's still a classic, but that's the only negative for me. It's just a wee bit too long. It just needed to get cut short about it. It was a brilliant match.
1: I have to say, I think I slightly agree with the match length. I don't think I was really proper watching it move for move until we got to a little bit of the later stages. But nevertheless, I completely agree, Alan. Best match of the night. Gary, what did you make of it?
2: Yeah, I mean, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly that pop when Bret Hart returned was fabulous. I always love subsequently when I understood this, but when Bret gives his sunglasses to the fans, he actually he signs and dates the sunglasses. So I always love it when you see that and you see like a match like this, which is significant to know that there's some kid out there that's got these sunglasses probably worth a fortune now. The commentary throughout this match was really interesting. This is something that Brett points to in his book as a real frustration of his because the commentators, despite the fact they're having this incredible match, which I thought was well-paced, really nice technical exchanges, but real some some really good physicality throughout it. There's some really wicked-looking moves. You know, the the hangman under the top rope it was something you didn't see an awful lot of, but always looks really devastating, I think. So Brent voiced that despite this going on in the ring, you have the commentators talking about ring rust all the time, which he was frustrated with. Austin got an l- awful lot of offence in this match, and I think Brett made Austin look like an absolute star, and I think this is an example, of, like we see in WrestleMania 13, of a match where somebody loses, but comes out looking fantastic. There was a fist fight towards the end of the match where they exchanged punches with each other, which I thought looked great. Brett always, always good at like these blocks and then follow-up punch as well. I always wince when I see pile drivers now, You don't see them that often. Obviously, I'd seen one being done on Austin and knowing what would happen to him subsequently. And you could see after the stunner, Austin's starting to get a bit desperate and pulling out all of these different moves to try and find a way to beat Brett. He had the Texas Cloverleaf. There was also a wicked spot where he sort of throws Brett across the ring and he slides along the canvas and lands sort of ribs first into the bottom of the ring post and then the Million Dollar Dream. Which I remember seeing it at the time. Again, just shades of the WrestleMania 8 finish when Roddy Piper put the sleeper hold in Brett and wouldn't release it, and Brett kicked off the top turnbuckle to beat them. So, really, I think a clever finish because Stone Cold was still protected and looked strong and coming out of this match as well. But yeah, enjoyed it. Uncle Dave gave it four and a half stars for this one. I thought, uh, yeah, a really excellent match
1: more than deserved i do think i'm so happy that i finally got to watch this match i've heard about it i've never watched it before do you know what the worst thing about this match this is what being a wrestling fan does to you seconds before it happened i was like oh this is the match where he rolls him up off the sleeper and pins him and i was like oh i wish i hadn't remembered that i've seen that like because i've only seen it in youtube clip shows i've never seen the match anything else So, yeah, just loved it. I love every time this finish gets ripped off as well. Like Samoa Joe and Christian Cage ripped off this finish in TNA for their massive match. I think it was sacrifice 2006, let's say, when Christian beat Samoa Joe to retain the belt. This just this match, man. Standout match of the night. Absolutely loved it. But don't forget, guys, it's still the mid-90s in the WWF, so... With all these brilliant highs, we have to go back down to some terrible lows. Backstage, Doc Hendricks interviews Sid, who says he'll do anything it takes to win the WWF Championship tonight. I was like, you probably should have said more there. You're fighting for the top belt in the WWF and you've not really sold it very well. Oh, and what's this? Captain Lou Albano comes out to the ring. He does a random loop of the ring and then sits down as Spanish commentary.
2: Hi. So, the story behind this, Chris, is that Captain Lou would often go up to Vince on show nights and ask if he can do something and be always on at home. And Vince would send them off to Bruce Pritchard. And Bruce would then have to deal with them. And on this particular night, they said Captain Lou apparently approaches Pritchard and says, Vince has told me to come speak to you to see if there's something you want me to do. And they just got so fed up with it. They went, oh, fuck it. Just go on out there and go and do this commentary. <laughs> so that's how he just randomly appears. <laughs> when you can hear, when you look back, watch it back, you hear this uh, surprise in Vince's voice. That, that shouldn't be happening. <laughs>
1: It was the most random thing but we have to mention Captain Lou did go in the Hall of Fame the previous night so he is as of this night officially a Hall of Famer. Match number five. We're back to traditional Survivor Series matches as Farouk, Razor Ramon, Diesel and Vader take on Savio Vega, Flash Funk, Yokozuna and one other man, white boys rap over the Nation of Domination theme tune as Farouk enters. I thought Farouk himself looked a million bucks, but mm. all of the guys around him just looked ridiculous. I love that theme tune. It's phenomenal. Oh, I love absolutely that. love the Nation theme. Guys, there's no time to even think about that because, oh my God, fake Razor Ramon has entered. Played here by Rick Bogner. This is the first time I've ever seen him enter for a match. Again, only seen him in YouTube clips and compilations. JR says, I don't get it. He's bigger, younger, better looking than the last guy to have this name. Because of course, JR was the one who kicked off this heel run by bringing in Razor Ramon and Fake Diesel, who's here as well. Oh my God. This is amazing. I've never seen these entrances before. They have, up until this point, appeared a few times on Superstars, but this is their big show debut. JR calls Kane Diesel money in the bank to absolute silence from the crowd. Vader comes out to make up the numbers, but I'm still marvelling at Kane's frizzy hair. Jim Cornette joins commentary saying, I've never even seen half these guys before, (laughs) which I thought was brilliant. Who's on our face team tonight? Well, we've got Savio Vega and Yokozuna, who both come out to huge pops. This is the line of the night for me from JR. Jim Cornette says, I led Yokozuna to the WWF Championship. JR responds, you led him at the buffet table.
2: Yoko was really sort of decline period if I could put it that way there you could see a marked difference in his performance here and when you look back on it it's I think this quite hard to watch because you know what follows not too terribly long after this for Yokozuna
1: Yeah, I hate to laugh, but yes, this is not the man who is WWF champion at WrestleMania 9 and WrestleMania 10. He is a much different beast at this point. I'm sure you've all heard the story about Jim Ross sending Yokozuna and Vader to a sort of fat camp, essentially, told them to lose weight and come back. And then it turned out that they were just sneaking out every night.
2: They put on weight at fat camp. Yeah, that did not
1: work. Who's this coming out? Flash Funk makes his debut with his Funkettes. I'm led to believe that they are unrelated to the Funkadactyls. They introduce a mystery tag partner, and it turns out to be Jimmy Snuka. Of course, Snuka was inducted into the WWF Hall of Fame the night before Survivor Series, much like Captain Lou. But much more significantly, let it never be forgotten that Jimmy Snuka was arrested and charged with third-degree murder and involuntary manslaughter in 2015 and was found in 2017 to not be fit for trial. Screw that guy. (laughs) Later into the match, Farouk attacks Savio on the outside while Vader just stands and keeps the faces away from the save. I really like that. I just, you know, building up that intimidation of vader by just holding off the faces from saving savio vega of course savio gets thrown in the ring for the jackknife from kane but oh wait it's not even the real jackknife as kane puts savio over his shoulder kane you big shite bag one two three savio vega is eliminated snooker comes in for the quick snooker splash on razor rick and he's eliminated before Kane comes in to smash Snuka with a chair. Savio runs back from the back with his own chair before the whole thing ends in a complete disqualification for all members. If there's one thing that's worth noting about this match, rewind it and just watch Yokozuna because he doesn't do anything and then comes in at the end of the match and punches Farouk once and then leans on the corner until the match is over. Brilliant from Yokozuna. He's doing the old Andre the Giant (laughs) participation in the match there by this. But yeah, so double DQ all round is essentially our piss break match because it's the second last match before the card. What can you say, Gary? Anything to note from this?
2: What can you say about it? It was clearly a match that they were running long and this one got cut short. Of what it looked, positives from it is I thought Flash Funk got a good showing for it. The crowd got a nice moment for the Superfly appearing in his Superfly splash moment. I think that's all I can say. I mean, it felt like the finish was a bit of a... It was just there, wasn't it? Yeah, Alan, you got anything good to say about yeah, this? The commentary very bitter from Tia
0: at this point. Obviously, you mentioned the the bigger, better, stronger, better looking, rather than more diesel. I mean, he goes on to talk about uh, Flash Funk when he says... Red and yellow never looked as good in the garden. Obviously, you reference who just jumped ship at this point. If we could forget for just a second about Cornette and his racism, Jim Cornette is absolutely absolute fucking genius in this match. His commentary is amazing, and it's so infuriating with the guy. I know like, there's no excuse his racism. Right? There's absolutely none. Right, But with the wrestling brain and the wit that he's got... I know what I thought he was an icon, but he could be such a bigger icon if he wasn't just such a racist prick. And there a couple of good botches in this, especially Vader falling before Funk hitting with the spinning heel kick. Gr consistently going on about poor refereeing decisions all night, which the blatant piss poor rules for the whole show was uh, it was just very obvious, especially in this match. And also, I really fell for Samuel Vega, because that guy was tagged, I do like 23 times. He was a workhorse for this match. <laughs> and although the match is 9 minutes 48, according to Wikipedia, this felt like a long match, even though it wasn't. But just something else, that you said, Gary, at the start, you talked about the star power on this, and it's made me think about it as we've been talking. Yes, there was a lot of star power, obviously. Austin wasn't quite there yet, but Hart, sure, Michael Cycle said. You think about who else is here who became a superstar, Diesel he ends up becoming Kane, one of the best big men in history. You're talking about Austin becoming the guy, The Rock getting debut. It's a, a very pivotal pay per view this, and it's really just such an important pay per view as well. But the last thing I was about this match, really pissed me off. Is Razor Ramon is taller than Diesel? We all know ain't. Eh? Razor Ramon's about six foot six, six foot to six foot eight. He's a big guy, and Kevin Nash is about about six ten to seven foot, and then that's when Razor's over seven foot and. Diesel's about six ten to seven foot. That really annoys. That's the thing that annoys me the most of it all, is they've just got the heights totally done wrong. I know it's petty, but it's just me.
1: Yeah, I don't think there's a wrestling fan alive that is fine with this. I don't think anyone in any of the live shows was ever fine with this introduction of these wrestlers don't think has ever happened you know outside of guys and masks and stuff like that the closest you could come is like when they bring people into tag teams like when they bring crush into demolition and stuff like that it just doesn't work and it's weird here's hoping they have learned their lesson on this forevermore. thankfully what good came of this it got kane on camera and he would go on to have a great career with the wwf but it was a shambles guys it's okay because we're about to save ourselves. Main event time, match number six. The pacing of this show for me so far has felt pretty spot on because here we are, sixth match of the night, and it's time for your WWF Championship match. Shawn Michaels, your champion since WrestleMania 12, is taken on Psycho Sid. First note, it's taken me until age 32 to realize Sid's name is spelled wrong. Mm-hmm. Psycho spelled with a P. And I've only noticed tonight when writing it, oh, there's no P in Cycle. Nevertheless, I'm not going to take that away from him. We get a great promo package showing Sean winning the belt from Brett back at Mania. And he's since defended it against an array of different comers, including Vader, the British Bulldog and Mankind. Shawn Michaels accidentally hit the sweet chin music on Sid, who's gone a bit crazy. And that's their feud. It's perfect, it's simple, and I'm on board. We get a great camera shot following Sid all the way to the curtain before his music hits, and we cut to the camera facing him as he walks out to the ring. The crowd go mad for him, despite him being the obvious heel. I love Sid's entrance. I have got it as my background as I speak to you on Zoom right now. The pyro, the sparklers, the big wide shot with the crowd in the background facing the entrance. I just thought it looked perfect. The camera then follows Shawn Michaels to the ring who walks that same hallowed hall that Hogan and Mr. T ran down at WrestleMania 1. When he gets to the ring, again, the arena comes unglued and a woman literally traps Shawn on the way to the ring, so much so that security have to jump in to release him. Just before we get underway with this match, what are you feeling Heading into this main event. Alan, like, personally, I was just so ready for it because I'm like this secret Sid fanboy, but I've never seen a lot of his stuff. What were you thinking just before the match started?
0: Yeah, very similar to yourself. Never seen a lot of Psycho Sid, but see, my man was a big ripped guy to be the guy. But Psycho Sid had that look of being the guy. He just had the full back, you know, he's big, he's built like a shit brick and he's powerful, you know, and his character work was actually very, very good. I know he technically he wasn't the best wrestler, but you know, you don't have to be technically the best wrestler to go over the anymore. I was really looking forward to And then, obviously, HBK, you know, where you're getting him. HBK always delivers. Look at what he did with Hogan. You know, he always, always delivers. It was a really good build up.
2: Yeah. Well, I didn't like Shawn Michaels. um am a Bret Hart fan, so I didn't like Shawn Michaels. I didn't like Shawn Michaels, the champion. I wanted him to get beat by whoever it was he was wrestling. And as legend tells it, this should have been Vader in the main event. But Vader was taken out because Shawn didn't like working with him and Sid was put in in his place. And what a difference for Vader. This should have been the night where he won the WWF Championship and instead... He's wrestling Savio Vega, Flash Funk and Superfly and Yokozuna. This was my favourite version or presentation of Sid. I thought he looked incredible and his entrance music is great. And this was supposed to be a heel turn for Sid. I'm not sure the people in New York, when he left that building that evening, considered him a heel. But yeah, I, I was looking forward to this. I wanted to see Shawn Michaels get beat. And I thought it was the man that was going to do it.
1: So this is where I actually want to bring you back in. Like as I said, I wanted to go into this show dry. Normally, I'd watch the build up to get the feel of the wrestlers' faces and heels. You just said there that this was supposed to be a heel turn. So was Sid supposed to be like a crazy person, but a face going into this?
2: Yeah, the two of them were pals. So Sid returned at In Your House International Incident to take the place of the ultimate warrior, because that should have been the six-man tag match that followed on from the King of the Ring match. At International Incident, Vader pinch Shawn Michaels. They then went on to have a match at SummerSlam and this was supposed to be the follow-up to that match and that never happened. So Sid took the place of the Ultimate Warrior in the six-man tag match at International Incident. So him and Sean were pals at this point. They were on the same team. So heading into this, it was kind of like a friendly rivalry. It was a face-versus-face type of match.
1: Okay. Well, let's dive into it. So Sid starts on the offense and straight away, I'm noticing the crowd are cheering. So I'm like, Mm -hmm. is he the face? I know that Sean's a face, but is he the face? Sean immediately takes over. He eventually locks on the figure four leg lock on Sid with JR pointing out that this is how he beat Vader. He took down his legs and he's working the bigger man down. Sid gets up and backs into the corner, hitting a cameraman who he shoves away. Let's make a note of that for later. John skins the cat, and it's much more awkward than he normally does it as he gets his neck caught under the bottom rope. It's all for naught, though, as Sid immediately clotheslines him back over the top rope. Michaels goes for this huge crossbody off the corner, but Sid catches him and the crowd go absolutely wild. I'm not in here. I wonder if the crowd are done with Sean as champion after seven months. Who knows? Michaels hits some punches and a scoop slam on Sid, and the crowd are booing. It's very, very strange. Michaels mounts some offense and goes for sweet chin music, but Sid reverses into a one-arm chokeslam. The 19,000 crowd go absolutely electric as Sid sets him up for the power bomb, but Sean reverses into a roll-up. Sid walks back into the corner and hits the cameraman once again, this time grabbing the camera off of him. He threatens to hit Sean with it before turning and hitting Sean's manager, Jose Lothario, in the chest. It's funny because the camera is obviously a live audio camera and you hear Jose go, ah! I just particularly like that. Sid gets Sean back in the ring, who accidentally cross bodies the referee. He goes back to dealing with Jose and Sid grabs the camera and smashes Sean in the back. Sid shoves Sean back in the ring and gets Sean up for the power bomb and slams him. Earl Hebner crawls to the cover and counts slowly. One, two, three. We have a new World Wrestling Federation champion. Immediately, Sean is back out the ring to check on Jose, who's still on the ground holding his chest. JR speculates that he's had a heart attack, which I'm pretty sure isn't physically possible from being hit. As Sean crawls to the back, our new champ, Psycho Sid, stands tall on the turnbuckle with his brand new belt, as a sadly a large NWO poster is in his background. Sid goes round the ring taking fist bumps from the fans, particularly one. I want to give a shout out. Whoever he is, he's sitting listening to our show, 50 years old. There's one guy that stops Sid and he goes, I told you, I told you you were the man. And Sid just laughs as if he's like totally taken in the moment. JR tries to steal Sid's thunder by saying, there may be a bigger story in the garden tonight than having a new champion. No, get lost, JR. Praise our new champion, Psycho Sid, is top of the WWF. Right, main event, what did you make of it? We'll go to Gary first. How did you take all this in?
2: Yeah, I think this is probably, I would say, Sid's best match ever. I thought it was a really, really good match. The build and the pace of the other match built started off quite slowly, as we mentioned earlier on, and you alluded to Chris not being sure who the face was Yeah, That's because they were both... The face is both popular, so the match build, in, in terms of speed and psychology, you can see Sid getting a bit frustrated. He went along, I thought the, you know, the bumping into the cameraman was clever, very clever, earlier on in the match. The standard big man, little man match where the little man goes after the big guy's legs and tries to work them over to take them down. They brought the crowd up and down throughout the match. There was a classic example of that where they were trading off fists against each other. There was some super-selling Bershon, which at times got a wee bit of OTT, the big flip after they jumped off the top rope and Sid got his feet up. You know, it can be funny at times. Sometimes it can take you out the moment, and I thought it was unnecessary for the type of match that we're having here. It was dead odd to see Sid apply the million-dollar dream, particularly when you've seen how well that worked for Stone Cold Steve Austin earlier in the show. <laughs> There was a really nice sequence in it, I thought, where we've seen the sweet chin music being blocked and Sid then getting Sean in the Choke Slam. I enjoyed it. Uncle Dave gave it three and three-quarter stars. I thought it was a good main event and set up a nice programme that, you know, relatively short programme, but a nice one that followed.
1: Touching on something that you kind of mentioned there, almost the opposite of what you're saying about Sean's overselling. I don't know if you noticed, did you notice that just a a, a fraction, because I know he's been guilty of this in the past against Diesel at WrestleMania. Did you notice that just a fraction, it looked like Sean tried to no-sell the powerbomb?
2: I can't see that I did, Chris.
1: Watch that back and just watch Sean's body. He, obviously, I'm not a wrestler, so if anything of what I'm about to say is wrong, then please correct me. But obviously, with your hands, if you're taking the powerbomb, you sort of pull your hands up and pull your body up. And it looks like Sean, from the sort of flip immediately goes dead and I was just a little bit disappointed because obviously that factored into the end of the WrestleMania match with Diesel and made it look kind of crap but it doesn't matter because we've got the belt on him and we don't have to give him it back for another two months or whatever it was. (laughs) Alan what did you make of the main event? It
0: was a good main event it wasn't the best main event I've ever seen but it probably was one of the best matches I've ever had speak. He does a wee bit of overselling it's a bit too much, but him not selling the powerbomb at the end, they've just been given a jack-nice powerbomb, the big powerbomb. You're not supposed to be able to move from it. Within three seconds of being pinned, he's outside checking on Lothario, and it just didn't work for the story. You've just been rattled at that seven-footer. You're not getting up. You're supposed to be lying here for a while at least, which I thought was a bit poor, but... Yeah, see, overall, with everything you've mentioned, spot on, totally agree with it. And I thought, guess i done quite a few of the matches on this card, ran too long for me. This was about just right. I thought the timing in this match was about spot on, which is what you expect for about a main event. I would say, personally, main event should normally be about 20 minutes. This is 20 minutes, too, according to
2: Wikipedia. So it was pretty much spot on, the money. I'm just re-watching the finish of the match, and it's about 20 seconds from Sean being pinned to him being outside the ring, pulling people away so he can get into Hosey. I, I think it's far too short. You know, well, I mean, it doesn't you need know, a Dean Ambrose but he weeks
0: everyone's left the arena before he to up. But mm-hmm. I rather thought they at least sold us in about a minute or so. And then he's overselling at the end. Well, would being tricked a It was a wee bit, bit hammy, you know. It was a bit over the thought.
1: So, yeah, in closing, I want to just pause for a moment to appreciate the man that is Sydney Raymond Udy. I think that for all of the wrestlers that we've seen come through the WWF at this time, I think he's just one to be noted. Like, he had a 30-year career. He started out in 87 and only retired in 2017. I watched the match recently just to kind of see what he's up to how he's doing for a 60 year old man i think that he looked pretty phenomenal i loved his appearances when he turned up on raw in what 2012 or whenever it was i think that both of his wwf runs were great. I think that when he came in in 91 and he had all that stuff with Hogan and the crowd were going wild for him, I thought that was brilliant. And it was such a shame that they decided to turn him heel to deal with Hulk Hogan, even though he should have been the future star to take over Hogan. And then, of course, when he turned up again in the 90s, I just thought he was phenomenal. I thought he looked a million bucks, as they say. I'm so happy he got to have these not one, but two runs with the belt in sort of 96, 97 time working with Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart and then Undertaker as well. Just brilliant. And then, of course, into his run after this in WCW, where he would go on to capture the World Heavyweight Championship there as well. There's aspects of him that I think are really cool. For a wrestler that came in at the time that he did, he's been arrested like once over not wearing a seatbelt. He's been married since 1987, so he's not like... (laughs) a rat bag carny like most wrestlers he has not showed up to a couple of wrestling shows in like 2014 to 2017 because the people who ran the shows were like big trump supporters he played softball and his time off from wrestling when he was healing from an injury just everything about this guy makes me love him so much more than i already do so i'm so happy that he ends this show as champion that is us for survivor series 1996 let's try and wrap this up overall i really enjoyed this show i thought it was a real highlight of the mid 90s when wrestling and the wwf especially just wasn't supposed to be at its best we had a good mix of singles matches and the traditional matches from survivor series it was interesting having lots of debutantes win their matches such as the guys in the opening match the rock the card was so stacked that they had to put undertaker and mankind on second the singles wrestlers in particular undertaker mankind bret hart stone cold psycho said and Shawn michaels all surefire hall of famers all world champions the downsides of course i thought the match number five was a bit random but with gary pointing out that maybe they did that for time i can actually now see that overall uh truly great survivor series i think this is you know having watched it today for the first time ever i'd say it's probably in my top three maybe top two survivor series shows ever i of course because of the era that i grew up in love 2001's survivor series so much but i think that this comes really really close to it if not better than it in terms of just being a great survivor series show specifically yeah so i'm going to go 8.5 out of 10. Alan, how would you rate this?
0: Yeah, I think it's a, a good one. I mean, you know, tonight, talking to you about it, I've rated it higher than I would have last night. I mean, you think at this point, right, WWF have lost the likes of Hogan, Hall, Nash, Macho Man, Lex Luger, Ultimate Warrior to WCW or other issues elsewhere. He's not long out after the steroid scandal. The company's not doing particularly well. And you look back and that show is fairly solid. It's future Hall of Famers, really good future stars as well. I think it's a pretty good one. I'd actually probably say, for me, top five of all time. I mean, my personal favourite that I mentioned earlier is 98, the Deadly Game. That's the pinnacle Survivor Series thing. I would say the only ones that potentially have better is 2001 and 2016. Or no, no, there's a 2018, the one NXT came in. That's the only ones that I'd say are maybe slightly higher than it. But on that, solid show. And considering the nineties and WWF were doing
2: awful and their show's going really to great, really good. I would probably give it about an eight. Yeah, I agree. Eight out of ten for me. I think there was lots of good stuff in here. A couple of points that we touched on that, that could have been better. But overall, you know, lots of positives about this show. Bret Hart and Austin, Sean and Sid were really very, very good matches undertaker of mankind kind of, bit of a significant moment in their feud so lots of good stuff in this show it's well well worth everybody going back and having a look at
1: fantastic right so that is us for our review of survivor series 1996 what did you guys make of it hopefully you have watched the show before listening if not go away watch it right now definitely message us your scores when we put this show up And yeah, what happened in the WWF after this? Well, this led us nicely into In Your House 12 in December 96. Owen Hart and the British Bulldog defended their titles against Razor and Diesel. Not those ones. Mark Meadow got his match with Hunter Hearst Helmsley for the Intercontinental Championship. Undertaker took on the Executioner in that Armageddon Rules match we told you earlier. And Psycho said had his big title match with Bret Hart. This would all, of course, lead... All the way to wrestlemania 13 with a whole bunch of much different things happening we had owen and bulldog defending against mankind Invader for the tag belts rocky maivia is fighting the sultan for the ic title and the undertaker taking on psycho said in the main event for the wwf championship and how could i forget of course the phenomenal submission match that brett and stone cold would have This led us into a nice little period of the WWF after coming out such an era of crap wrestling. I'm happy to say that it's all uphill from here. But what happens next? I guess you'll have to tune in this time next year when we do the Survivor Series 1997. Guys, that is a wrap. Gary, Alan, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for being the sole survivors. Sadly, Callum got eliminated along the way, but we are the sole survivors of this one.
2: <laughs> Thank you,
1: Chris.
0: Thanks very much, mate.
1: Enjoyed it. The wrestling landscape completely turned on its head, but just for this night in 1996, let's just appreciate the WWF managed to put on a good show. With Sid Yudi holding the belt above the WWF, we're going to say goodnight. Thanks once again to Gary and Alan. I've been your host, Chris Murray. As always, get back on, eat, sleep, suplex, retweet on all the social medias to keep up to date with all of our latest discussions and all of our brand new episodes. And we'll see you soon for some really great shows.